Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? What about the land? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I have sinned against you, my lord. I want my MTV. Twenty-one years. Rediscovery of the years 1980 through 2001. With your host, Sam Willie. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 21 Years, the podcast about the pop culture's greatest time in history, and that's the 80s and 90s. I am your host. Every episode, we're going to meet, have a squat, have a discussion, and we're going to talk about pop culture, news stories from the 80s and 90s, and how they shape the future and the past. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about all kinds of topics. Some will be newsworthy, some will be pop culture worthy, but they're all going to be things that are going to jog your memory if you were born in that era, the era I consider the greatest time in pop culture history, the 80s and 90s. So listen, we're going to be doing movies, we're going to do music, we're going to do electronics, your favorite TV shows, everything and anything is really, really up for grabs here. Uh, The main thing is, is that it's nostalgic, it's fun, Uh, there may be a story behind it that we didn't know about. Uh, We're going to just look at things as they come, we're going to dissect them, we're going to break them down, and we're going to try to understand them a little bit better as Generation Xers. Uh, you may be curious. Well, I'm not a Generation Xer. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my hands. Well, you know what? Just listen. If you're a millennial, you're welcome. If you're a boomer, you're welcome. If you're a YZKL9 LP um, generation, you have a seat here. Everybody's interested in the 80s and 90s. That's what's kind of cool about all of this. And we don't have a lot of podcasts out there that kind of explore it. So here we are, and we're going to do this. And I kind of consider myself a doctor of pop culture. I love to understand how pop culture shapes things and how it has an effect on people. And uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of that as we explore certain stories. It's going to be a lot of fun, like I said. And you'll probably be asking yourself, well, how long are these podcasts going to be? Is it going to be a two-hour thing? El Dangeroso, I know that you talk a lot, and I don't want to be in my car waiting for this rad information that you're about to soothe my ears with and be in the parking lot at work late because you're going on for two hours running your mouth. Well, we're not going to do it that way. It's going to be fine. You're going to love it because what we're going to try to do is break these things down at, you know, anywhere between 20 to 40 minute episodes. Perfect time for you to go get a latte and sit down and uh, take notes about all this stuff and just kind of reminisce and think back on it. Um, so don't worry. We're not going to be doing big, long biographies. Uh, there's a lot of podcasts that do that they like to break it down and spend 45 minutes on a topic two hours three hours 
is not the this is not the point of this episode. It's not the point of this podcast. So don't worry. Sit down, warm up your flux capacitor. You know, pet your gremlin. Okay, play with your goonie. We're gonna have a good time. It's gonna be short, sweet, and nice. Now this episode is gonna be about something you probably finally remember if you were born in that time frame or were raised in that time frame. And we're going to talk about the Just Say No campaign, which was Nancy Reagan's campaign. But before that, I just wanted to let you guys know that the show is sponsored by Ed Williams Insurance. Get a quote from him today on auto and home, homeowners insurance, if you have renter's insurance, whatever you need. Uh, they have a website, edwilliamsins.com. You can get a quote online or you can get it over the phone. If you're in the state of Georgia, this is where they operate. So please, if you're one of the local people to them, give them a call. 770-461-1355. Tell them you heard heard about them on the podcast. It would help us greatly. And uh, you'd like to get a quote. And um, great people over there. Good company. Been around since the 70s. Uh, Very cool. We appreciate them being a sponsor. Now, as we said, we're going to do the Just Say No campaign tonight. Uh, we'll be releasing these things sporadically. We're going to try to do two, at least two a month. Um, this is kind of a side gig to other podcasts that I do. So they'll be coming out and I hope everybody enjoys it. And we'll also be taking feedback. And as we get on social media and, and promote the, the podcast, you guys will be able to have a voice in what you want to hear about. We'll put some polls up hopefully, and, and you guys can be a part of it. So, uh, I'll be, I'll be pretty much setting that out there. And of course you found us on probably Podbean or iTunes or, uh, Google play, uh, we are out there where podcasts are being pro- produced and promoted. Please look us up. It's 21 years, and uh, we really, really appreciate having a lot of follows here. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun as we get going. Um, now, before we also get into Just Say No, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was uh, the Swatch was actually uh, something that came about this time in 1983. And I loved Swatches. I, I, I loved them. I never had them. I had like a uh, flea market version with a rubber band to protect the face that was kind of twisted. Uh, but a lot of you cool cats and people had the real, sw- you know, swatches. And I don't think looking back on it, they were very expensive. I just, I don't know. I guess my parents just at the time just felt like it was kind of a stupid novelty. And to this day, I don't wear watches. So it probably would have been a complete waste. But um, yeah, swatches found it in 1983. And uh, it's the flagship subsidiary of a Swatch Group. The Swatch product line, you know, kind of was like developed as a response to what they called the quartz crisis of the 70s and 80s. Um, and it was just basically inexpensive Japanese made digital watches. You remember the calculators that used to <laughs> wear on your wrist? Uh, I did have one of those, man. You want to talk about like just way too much on your wrist. Now, you know, we've got iPhone, iPhone, you know, watches and iWatches and digital this and digital that account every step and read your mind and uh, you know, know your credit card number and social security number and DNA. But back then, you know, it just was cool to have this clunky watch that, that you could do math on. And I'm not even sure why that was a big deal, but being able to do math on your wrist was kind of a huge thing back then. Um, so Japanese made digital watches were really competing against the traditional European mechanical watches. Um, and, you know, with that quartz crisis, you know, you kind of had an issue where it was starting to threaten the uh, Swiss watch industry. Um, so, it, like, after World War II, Switzerland controlled, like, 90% of timepiece production and, and retained until 1970 85% of the world wristwatch market. So they had a pretty good stranglehold 
on all time pieces that were coming out of the time. Um, but in just 10 years, the share of the market really kind of collapsed. And by 1988, controlled only 22% of the market. In 1983, the share dropped even further to 15%. Well, guess what? Asian competitors, mainly to the Japanese, started pushing the Swiss watchmakers out. And they were pretty much offering it by like cheap quartz watches. Uh, you know, you could find these watches. It's funny to think about now, but my God, you go to a flea market and it was just loaded with these digital watches, man, that you could just buy in these cheap boxes. But these things were really, 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 you know, coming out and selling hot and pushing, you know, more designers, you know, watches and mechanical watches out. Uh, we didn't like to read hands. We we didn't like to read the minute and hour. It was difficult for us. It's still difficult for many of us. And just having something flash on the screen to tell you it was 809 was a heck of a lot easier than trying to count by five. So here we are in this situation. And the really weird part is that the Swiss, the Swiss people really kind of invented quartz technology. You know, they invented the liquid crystal display. And they actually invented the first electronic watches. But it was Asia and, J and Japan and China where these, you know, technologies were transformed into new products um, and new watches that were made very cheaply uh, to the public. And so a lot of people, especially young people, could afford these, you know, $7, $8 watches. Now, the calculator watch was a little bit more expensive. <laughs> I remember trying to get one from my parents and they were like, I think like 50 bucks. And it was like impossible, you know, and, and even today, when I think back at like scientific calculators, it was like such a pointless product to have, but every, I'm telling you, every kid wanted one. If you weren't from that era and you're looking at me like I'm crazy and I've got a third eye, I'm telling you, everybody wanted a calculator watch back then. A calculator watch and a Casio electric piano were kind of like the thing to have. The electronics were kind of a big deal to us. It was all new. We were exploring new territory, um, but the Asian markets did flood the world markets with digital analog quartz wristwatches, uh, which were cheap and kind of inaccurate. Um, but listen, this podcast is about the stories behind the stories of the 80s and 90s. And as all this is going on, the swatch itself, the actual watch, was never really even planned. It wasn't even like a you know, deliberate innovational strategy that's been carefully thought out or schemed up or some kind of brilliant vision somebody had in their sleep, uh, like the flux capacitor. Nobody was hanging a picture over the toilet, fell and hit their head on a sink. Um, it was really just a simple waterproof, cheap to make sturdy design. And, and the weird part about swatches is that they were actually unrepairable. <coughs> I mean, using what they call plastic welding, which was this process of creating a molecule bond between two compatible thermoplastics. I know you're, you're asking me right now if my degrees from Purdue. It is not. Um, definitely a Harvard man here. Uh, actually, Cornell. Ever heard of it? Uh, welding offers superior strength and reduces cycle times and waterproofing. Um, because the watch was welded with plastic in a, in a plastic weld, uh, it couldn't be repaired because you couldn't open it. And because it couldn't be repaired, the Swiss realized that the swatch had to be a flawless piece of machinery. Although the impossibility of repairing the swatch could have put the brakes on the project, in the end, the characteristics that forced 
the unrepairable watch to happen forced them to firmly, consistently, constantly improve the mastery of the swatch and its manufacturing process. So because they couldn't open the watch to actually fix the gears or anything like that, A, it made the, made the watch relatively cheap. It made the watch extremely waterproof. And it basically made them make a watch that didn't need to be repaired. Now, some of you might be saying, well, my swatch sucked. Well, you got ripped off. That was probably somebody, your mom probably got that at some kind of salvage place uh, with some dude that opened up his jacket and it's like, hey, lady, come over here. You want a swatch? $10. Well, that's what you got. Sorry to tell you. It's hard to tell the, hey, it's hard to tell the fakes from the real. It really is. It's not your fault. It was a long time ago. Forgive your mom. The constraint to repair swatches, though, condemned the firm to strive for total quality, which uh, spurred on a designer to increase the performance and the process and the quality of the watch year after year, product phase after product phase. Finally, dig this. The quality of the swatch was based on a simplified architecture and reduced the number of components used in the watch to simply 51 components. Now, in a regular watch... There's 150 parts that are moving and required to make a traditional mechanical watch. So even, even less than the 91 parts to make a quartz model. So as they're fighting this quartz shortage and the Asian market that's making these quartz watches cheaper, the same quartz they invented. Can you imagine how pissed you might be about that? Um, it was actually, it even had 91, um, it, it had less than 91 parts um, that were needed for just the, the Chinese quartz model. So this watch was very, very simplified. And the design cycle is a virtuous one. You know, they wheeled plastic watch, can't be repaired, produced the, produced the watch with zero defects, uh, made sure that it ran without fail, built using a simplified kind of architecture. Um, and a reduced manufacturing cost, which made a reliable process. And in the end, made a very affordable, fancy, stylish watch, which everybody wanted. And if you ever went through riches at that time, you know exactly what I was talking about. I had the long plastic box, colors galore. Um, you know, this was not fake, low-cost Rolex and plastic or anything like that. It was a full-fledged innovation of watches. And on top of that, the battery was a five-year battery. And that's in comparison to a typical three-year battery watch back at the time. So you had a watch that lasted five years for sure on the battery, which was two years longer than any of the other standard batter, uh, watches that were out there. And, you know, due to the fact that, that Swiss... The Swiss watch company didn't want to pretend that the Swatch was an imitation high-end watch. They decided to, against a boring plastic appearance, and they decided to go with plastics that would adhere to resins, which allowed to for, for like a variety of color combinations and wild graphic designs. Now, if you're going to know anything about the 80s, this is 83 here, but if you're going to know anything about the 80s, it's bright colors. We loved to be blinded by neon green, uh, majestic purple, uh, Pacific blue, um, you know, uh, you know, purple majesties, pink. Yeah. I mean, we just, we liked colors that blinded us. I mean, whether it was your sunglasses, shoelaces, I mean, we loved bright, bold colors. 
Um, and it, it's funny, like when you look at stuff from the seventies, I remember our carpet in our house where I grew up was like this peat, like nasty green. And I remember asking my mom, I was like, why did y'all have green carpet? She was like, that was what was in, in 1977, baby. That was what was happening. What was happening was a, was a jade color shag carpet. Well, we kind of grew out of those dull greens and browns and yellows, and we moved on to very bright, vibrant colors. And Swatch was one of the products that led the way for that. Now, Swatch was really cheap at the time and still even today at the price tag of $19.99. And only $6 to make the watch for Swiss, you know, it was very profitable for them. Um, and with the fashion combinations now, Swatch was not, I mean, you would look at a Swatch and it didn't even have numbers on it. Okay. Or it might have like one number on it, but like this crazy, like checkerboard design or lightning bolts or flames or whatever, you know, red, purple, green. It was wild. And, you know, for, for them to make that kind of money off of the product and for that product to gr- to actually grab a hold of young people the way that it did, it was a match made in heaven. Um, and actually, the name Swatch is a contradic- contraction of second watch, uh, believe it or not. So it wasn't even made to be the main watch that you wore, even though people wore color combinations that matched their clothes, man. I mean, this was the thing, okay? You put on some jams, right? I don't know if you guys remember original jams, but these were shorts that looked like swimming trunks. But they weren't swimming trunks because they didn't have the nut, the nut net. Uh, you know, you wore normal underwear in these things. And you wore them out like, you, you know, it's like wearing a pair of wild boxers out. And these things had like wild flowers and, you know, um, you know, really it was mostly just wild like flowers that you would find on some forbidden planet. Actually, flowers from Avatar were basically pre-Avatar on these shorts. I mean, bright reds and, you know, a lot of pink surfers, you know. Um, weird neon things and, you know, stop signs. I don't know. We just, it was just patterns after patterns on jams, but you get your jams on, but your bands on your feet, right? Sleeveless, uh, shirt, maybe from a journey concert and you throw your swatch on that swatch. How do you match your jams, man? Cause it, it all flowed together. Right. And then you had your, like I said, you had your Velcro wallet in the back. That was different. Color. I mean, you know, we had it happening more than any other generation. This is amazing. I mean, I think about this, I just get so damn excited, guys. But again, we go back. The watch was a fashion statement. The fashion watch revolution not only redefined watch fashion, but watch function. It delinked the watch from its core time t- uh, timekeeping function. Something that was and still is unthinkable when you think about Japanese quartz digital watches, right? So it did the exact opposite to get the eye of the consumer, and it, it just worked. The watch became primarily a fashion accessory, and that really starts the fad of watches being something to keep time, you know, when you're waiting on the steam engine in, uh, you know, 1772, to, you know what, I don't know what time it is, and I don't care because it matches my my uh, my, my jams. It, it matches, you know, it matches my Journey shirt. You know, my Phil Collins shirt. You know, it, it matches, you know, everything I have in my closet I've got a swatch for. 
So they became a fashion statement and not so much a timepiece. And that was kind of cool. It's kind of cool to see that kind of make that change where now, just like a bracelet or anything else, you're wearing a watch that matches your clothing. It was, it was a fashion accessory that just so happened to tell time. That shift led to a revolution in watchmaking and branding, and the sales boom brought a stampede of fashion industry labels into the world seeking a piece of the fashion action. You like that? Fashion action Jackson. Over time, fashion brands would migrate from the affordable segment of the watch uh, market to mid-range and luxury segments. Swatch was the first watch made to be an accessory more than it was a timepiece. Swatch, you're a classy, you're an icon, you're a legend. Thank you for all you did for us, the Generation Xers. Stay tuned, guys. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Just Say No campaign. You listen to 21 Years. I'm your host, Old Dangeroso. Ice cream is crunches. Ice cream? Oh, and it crunches. Ice cream. <laughs> That's why I love Nestle Crunch. Nestle Crunch ice cream bars are scrunchious. That's why we love Nestle Crunch. At some places, getting tender chicken isn't always easy. And what you may wind up with is one tough bird. At Kentucky Fried Chicken, we start with plump, tender chicken. Then we cook it the Colonel's special way, so it's tender and delicious, bite after bite after bite. So for great-tasting chicken you can sink your teeth into, come to the Chicken Expert. Because when it comes to tender chicken, ours is a real knockout. Kentucky Fried Chicken, we do chicken right. We're back. Hope you guys had a little fun with that Swatch thing. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Listen, there's no big to-do about Swatch when you go back and look at it. It just was a really cool fashion accessory that kind of took the world by storm. Like I said, if you went into a Riches, you went by the display case, you saw those long plastic clear boxes that they were in, and you're like, man, if I could just buy every one of these, I would be set for the rest of my life. So hopefully you guys enjoyed remembering the swatch and giving the swatch the proper tribute and respect it deserves. In fact, I think swatch is still out there, believe it or not. But, you know, hey, that was a good time. That was a good time to be alive when you didn't even have to tell time. You just needed to be in fashion. Um, Everybody was late back in the 80s. By the way, we all had swatches. We didn't know what time it was, really, because it had like a, a little guard across the face of the glass so you hold well, glass excuse me plastic so you wouldn't scrape it had like a face protector and it pretty much covered all the numbers when there were numbers sometimes there weren't any numbers at all but we're moving on to the next topic guys and we're gonna get out of here real quickly i appreciate you guys hanging in there hopefully you know we're gonna continue to do fun stuff like this and you're gonna enjoy it I feel like i'm upselling you on how much fun this is gonna be it's gonna be the most fun you ever had it's gonna make your mind explode it's gonna be insane I mean, it's a party in your brain, you know, and uh, there's no there's no cover charge at your eardrums. Everybody's just coming right in, having a good time in your brain. 80s party in your head on their way to work. Can't get any better than that, can it? Well, it can. 
because we're going to talk about 1983 still, and we're going to talk about the Just Say No campaign. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate whether or not the Just Say No campaign really worked and whether it didn't or did work and blah, blah, blah. Well, we're going to talk about whether it did or didn't. And I don't know if you guys remember when you first kind of heard about the Just Say No, Just Say no campaign, but that was kind of every... Every first lady takes on a cause. Um, some take on lunchroom diets. Uh, others take on drug problems. Some take on homelessness. It's just kind of what they do. Um, it's uh, something that has always been kind of a tradition. And in 1983, uh, First Lady Nancy Reagan made an appearance on an episode of Different Strokes. What you talking about? Dangeroso? Well, I'm talking about her beginnings of the Just Say No campaign. And this goes back a little bit further, like the 1960s. And in the 60s, you kind of had drugs becoming like this symbol of youth, youthful rebellion, social upheaval or political dissent. Uh, the government halted scientific research to evaluate medical safety and efficiency on recreational drugs like marijuana. Um, and... If you go back a little ways or you kind of fast forward a little bit from the 60s, you're going to 1971 where President Nixon declared, we will have a war on drugs. And Nixon temporarily placed marijuana in a Section 1 uh, category, which is the most restrictive category of drugs. And it's so weird now when you think about, you know, everybody's freeing up, you know, everybody's using cannabis oil. I mean, I saw something on TV where golfers were using CBD oil and trying to sell it because it, you know, it kept their body in shape. And now people are going to dispensaries and, you know, you don't have to have the glaucoma anymore. Now you just have to have headaches <laughs> or, you know, I'm not eating enough and I'm not hungry enough, doctor. What can I do? Well, I have an idea. You know, you can just smoke some pot and get hungry and just snack on Doritos and, and cake. You know, because we all know when you smoke pot, you have weird appetite. I don't know. What am I saying? I'm, I'm kind of selling myself out here. I don't know anything about that. I've just heard. I've read and seen on TV, you know, uh, how this works. Anyway, let's move on. Um, but <laughs> he put it as a Schedule 1. This is the most restrictive category for drugs. Um, and like I said, it's just odd where, where we are now. Uh, in 1972, though, a review commission... Uh, unanimous, unanimously recommended decriminalizing the possession and distribution of marijuana for personal use, but Nixon ignored it and uh, rejected its recommendations. So Nixon went on to create this thing called the DEA, right, the Drug Enforcement Administration in 1973, and this agency was like basically a special police force that committed to targeting like illegal drug use and smuggling in the U.S. And, uh, you know, kind of we fast forward to 1977, President Jimmy Carter, you all remember him, the peanut farmer, um, uh, his inauguration on his inauguration uh, was on a campaign that included marijuana decriminalization, which I find very interesting that even back in 1977, this was a topic. And in October 1977, Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize possessions of up to an ounce of marijuana for personal use. So what happened? Right? What happened? I mean, fast forward to 1983. Now we're doing a Just Say No campaign, but it seems like America and its you know politicians and its laws and its legal people and uh, you know the people that are above my pay grade 
have kind of gone back and forth and it kind of looks like they're like, ah, you know, maybe it's not so bad, you know. Well, proposals to decriminalize marijuana were abandoned because parents became increasingly concerned about high rates of teen marijuana use. That's where all this comes from. Public concern became uh, came about from illicit drug use built throughout the 1980s, largely due to media portrayals of people addicted to the smuggable form of cocaine called crack. It's a cheap, addictive, a very effective form of cocaine, um, which was basically smoked and developed by Miami gangs, uh, actually from the Caribbean, believe it or not. That's true. Miami gangs from the Caribbean came across this invention of crack. I don't know who the main guy was. I haven't dig that. I didn't dig that deep into history of crack, you know, cause that's not really what this episode's about, but um, I don't know who it was, you know, but man, you know, I don't know who decided that you could mix bacon powder and soda and cocaine and dry it and smoke it. I, I don't even know. God, I don't even know. Like, I don't even know if that's something like even like these Harvard people can figure out, right? I don't know. But anyway, somebody did, and they made a killing off of it. And the popularity of, of, of crack led to an increase in the number of Americans who became addicted to cocaine. The, you know, the nose candy, the devil's whisper. You've heard of it before. And the China doll and the white horse i don't think that's the white horse is it i don't know we don't know you know how much i know about drugs now uh in 1985 the number of people who say they use cocaine on a regular routine basis increased from 4.2 million to 5.8 million gasp oh my god look how many people are using cocaine now by 1987 crack was reportedly available in all but four states which i believe if i had to take a guess maybe uh montana uh wyoming Idaho, and let's just throw in, hey, let's throw in North and South Dakota. Let's say five. I know it says four, but come on. Who's selling crack in North Dakota? Who's selling crack in South Dakota and Montana and Idaho? Who's doing that? Come on. Let's get real here. But on a more serious note, emergency room visits for cocaine-related incidents increased fourfold between 1984 and 1987. As we said, you know, first ladies spend their time campaigning for a cause that's dear to their hearts. And Nancy Reagan had been concerned about drug use prior to her arrival at the White House. This was going on before they, before her husband was ever elected. Um, but as First Lady, she made prevention of youth, youth drug addiction her signature cause. And you may be wondering where the slogan for Just Say No came from. Uh, you know, she was awakened from a sleep um, by an angel who... Um, handeth, handeth it down um, this scroll that said just say no on it. But that's not really what happened. Um, what happened was she basically was uh, at the Ronald Reagan Library telling, oh, well, she was telling the story at the Ronald Reagan Library that basically a little girl raised her hand and said, Miss Reagan, what do we do if someone offers us drugs? And she said, well, you just say no. There you go. No angel with wings, no no uh, no etching stones, no glowing visions, uh, no wind blowing, no hand of God, just a little girl asking a question from the mouths of babes, right? 
By the end of the Reagan administration in 1989, more than 12,000 Just Say No clubs had been formed worldwide. And I can attest that if you're a member of one of those, you're pretty nerdy. Not going to say that. You may not want to admit to people that you were part of those clubs, but, you know, listen, you know, Just Say No clubs were for nerds. We'll just put it that way. Um, in 1983, she played herself in an episode. I mean, who else is she going to play? It's Fancy Reagan. You know, she played herself in an episode of Different Strokes, which was extremely popular at the time. And Different Strokes took on a lot of heavy, believe it or not, if you remember back, and we may talk about in the future, but the Different Strokes took on some very heavy material at times because it was so popular and kids were watching it. Um, Gary Coleman portrayed a reporter for the school newspaper who discovered drugs were being sold on the school campus. And what did he do? Told on them. And what happened? He got beat up, terribly beat up. And Nancy Reagan heard about it and came to visit him. That's not what happened. Basically, he told on them. She came to the school to offer support for anti-drug efforts in the school where Gary Coleman's character Arnold was going to be and going to school. And they solved all the drug problems. Like that. All the drug problems were gone. Nancy Reagan comes in, sweeps it away, nulls the whole situation. No more drugs. Everybody's done. That's not what happened. I'm sure. In fact, Gary Coleman's school, Arnold's school, became one of the worst drug-infested schools on TV. Um, of course. You know, that's just how it happens. But they hide that from the media. It's not something they like to talk about. Uh, but she also went... Uh, to another popular kids TV show. If you remember Punky Brewster, uh, you know, the little girl with the uh, mismatched shoes, obviously was colorblind, uh, could not dress herself appropriately, and lived with an old man who obviously did not care what she wore, and she had a dog. And um, basically, she was in an episode with Nancy Reagan, resisting peer pressure to take drugs, and started a partnership with Nancy Reagan's Just Say No Club, organizing anti-drug punky Brewster marches at schools around the country. That's right. There were other kids who could not match their clothes and decided to come together. And as they dressed like people on acid, refused to take acid, which is really strange that you would dress that way and yet be like, I don't take drugs. You know, I just dress like I'm on drugs, which is interesting to me. Anyway. Uh, the movement gained national, nationwide, uh, nationwide media attention, even recruiting major pop culture figures, figures to speak on the problem. Some major figures that appeared alongside Nancy Reagan and in the other Just Say No campaigns included Whitney Houston, ha ha ha, David Hasselhoff, ha ha ha, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I'm not sure, I don't think he probably ever did drugs, maybe he did, I don't know, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Eh, you know, are anabolic steroids drugs? I think so. I mean, I like to go there. And wouldn't Arnold Schwarzenegger filmed smoking joints like back when he was doing some workout video? Oh, Whitney Houston. How far we fall. It's a shame. But anyway, she was part of that. It's just ironic. I'm not going to, you know, a, we're not going to make cheap jokes here, but it's a little odd. I remember video a couple of years, <laughs> couple of years ago. This is probably, and you can probably look it up on YouTube. But there's actually a video of David Hasselhoff drunk in his bathroom on drugs or something. And he's eating like this huge, nasty cheeseburger on the floor of the bathroom out of his mind. And of course, you know, as good parents do, they have their kids film them on the floor 
eating a cheeseburger, acting like it's the most enjoyable cheeseburger that has ever been made. Um, but if you can find David Hasselhoff eating a cheeseburger drunk or on, on drugs, it's, it's really kind of hilarious. Um, so it's just funny. I mean, listen, some of the people that were doing these anti-drug campaigns were on drugs during the campaigns. So it's like anything else, right? I mean, we see that now with a lot of things that work out that way. Be careful who your idols are, people. That's all I can tell you. Um, the Just Say No campaign uh, permeated pop culture at the time. But we're going to investigate whether the message even really worked. So Just Say No gets a lot of criticism. And it's not really misplaced criticism entirely. Some people think it's just an attack on conservative politics. And we don't do politics here if we can help it. And some people say, look, it was just a disaster. It didn't work. So let's talk about where it made its mistakes. Number one, the message was just too broad and too narrow at the same time. Now, you may be saying, El, El Dangeroso, how does that happen? I don't know if that's an oxymoron, but it sounds like it should be, excuse my miseducation on grammar for a guy who does a podcast. But just say no, focus heavily on marijuana. But it lacked in the education of other more serious drugs. The simple yet vague messages simply grouped up everything from alcohol to heroin to marijuana into one big boogeyman, I guess you could really say, uh, to describe it correctly. Um, but this isn't really the fault of the Just Say No campaign. It was widely believed that like marijuana was his gateway drug. And we still kind of like hear that, you know. Um, and I think I'm personally going to say I think there's a little bit of truth to it. I mean, you know, you guys can run your hate mail. We're just having a discussion about the 80s and 90s here. Relax. I don't need you to be uh, warriors for, for information. We're just talking here. I've done my research. Back off. But. There is some debate whether or not marijuana is a gateway drug. I can tell you this. Everybody I know on drugs started with marijuana. So, you know, I got to kind of give it some credit a little bit here. And when experts were telling them, addiction experts and scientists and everything like that, were saying at the time that this is a gateway drug that gets people involved in bigger drugs later on, you know, even today science is split on whether it is or it isn't a gateway drug. But while the campaign was laser-focused on stopping the problem early on by focusing on marijuana, it kind of lacked the focus on how to categorize drugs. For example, like D.A.R.E. campaigns, um, when they were launched in the school, they basically told kids all recreational drugs and drug habits were bad. So anything that was addictive is bad. So where are we going with this? Well, mom and dad smoke. So they're addicts. Alcohol can be addictive. And my dad drinks a beer when he gets home from work. So he must be an addict. So in turn, they made everything bad and nothing okay in moderation. And in that way, they shouldn't be used. So these young kids were getting beaten to their heads that Smoking was just as bad as marijuana and heroin and drinking was just as bad as smoking crack. And this caused some problems at home because if you are like me and you enjoy a nice cold one, you want to go visit the mountains of Coors. When you get home, you want to ride the silver bullet into oblivion on a Friday night after everybody goes to bed. Well, guess what? 
According to Just Say No campaign telling your kids you are an addict and therefore you have a problem. So the tensions in households begin to raise quite a bit because smoking and you know drinking is still a thing, of course, and smoking has begun to taper off over the years as we start to kind of realize, well, maybe it does kill you. We kind of started to say, well, let's not smoke cigarettes so much. Let's just inhale the vaporized smoke. I'm just, you know, throwing spitballs out here. here. But, you know, we have an addiction problem. Some of it can be done in moderation. It, it, you know, like cigarettes are sold in stores. Beer is sold in stores. You have to be a certain age. But to children, the information that they're getting is that these are all addictive products. And so their parents must be addicted to drugs. On the flip side, kids who tried marijuana, right, usually realized it wasn't much worse than alcohol to begin with. And they begin to be curious about other drugs and see if they were just as mild and, and, and as fun as marijuana. So it almost made kids more curious about smoking dope than anything else. Um, that was kind of like the second big mistake is that they kind of, kind of in a way, um, make kids more interested in smoking marijuana, (laughs) you know, um, they kind of, kind of made it a bigger deal. Um, and the third mistake was painting any abuser of addiction substances as bad people. Like we said, uh, mom and dad are bad people because, they smoke cigarettes. And that was kind of the thing. The message made parents look like addicts to their children when they drank a beer or wine at dinner. Parents who smoked cigarettes were labeled addicts by their children. The message was too narrow on one drug and entirely too broad on all drugs. Any substance, including nicotine and alcohol, again, was considered a drug. And therefore, I think a little confusing to children at the time who was used to going and grabbing. I remember... Uh, when, when, you know, the, the eighties, um, I remember having friends who lit their parents cigarettes for them. I don't know if you guys knew any of these but I knew kids that actually <laughs> would light the cigarettes in their mouths for their parents. That's the truth. I'm telling you, you may be a millennial right now, or one of these younger people, Baby boomers know what I'm talking about. I see you nodding your head. You were there. You were asking us to do that stuff. I know. But, you know, cigarettes just weren't that big of a deal back then. I mean, you know, I think people knew it was dangerous, but didn't know how dangerous. It was an enjoyable, pleasurable experience. I'm an ex-smoker. I know what people go through when they enjoy a cigarette. And so um, (laughs) labeling these people as bad people just because they smoke and, and drank was so broad of a brush that it really just it really crossed wires uh, for, for kids in that day and age. Um, So those who did anything that was addictive uh, was basically said to have made a conscious decision to do so, uh, knowing that their decision would ruin their lives. They would turn into, uh, they would then in turn try to drag others down with them. Like, you know, I, I'm smoking crack and you need to smoke crack too. You have to smoke this crack. We all need to be smoking crack. Tell your friends, make them smoke the crack. And that's what people were being told was going on. But of course we know better than that. There's a lot of misinformation, a lot of scare tactics, of course, 
But that's not really how any of it works, right? I mean, you know, when you look at peer pressure, it's not adver- it's not really the way they advertise it, which is bad people pushing drugs on innocent kids. You know, and some dude in a Camaro under the bleachers of the school uh, waiting for you to walk by so that he can shove drugs down into your pocket or shoot you up with heroin as you're going to uh, third grade. Um, but that's how these things were portrayed. You know, I don't know if you remember the just say no campaign where they did the commercial where the dealer ended up being a real life snake and he transforms into a snake uh, and hisses and everything like that was the portrayal, you know, that you, that there are people that were going to be out there that were going to kidnap you and just shove drugs down your throat. And a lot of you are like, man, I wish it was like that because it would have been great. But for kids at that time, it was terrifying. Because you got to remember, too, on top of getting all this, and we're going to talk about this in an episode as well, but in the 80s particularly, after the Adam Walsh uh, murder, which was terrible, uh, which was a a kid who was kidnapped, I believe, from a Sears and uh, decapitated. It's a very deep, dark thing that just, you know, unfortunately um, scared a lot of parents. There was a lot of kidnappings going on in the 80s. It's a really weird time. Uh, And so... A lot of us were being told that a car was going to come by and snatch us up and take us. You know, that was don't take candy from strangers and don't approach an odd car. And it was a really kind of a weird time. I think every generation kind of goes through scary things. Um, And certainly one of ours was um, the kind of seemed like an uptick in kidnappings of of children. Um, And so you add in having these drug dealers waiting around a corner to 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 grab you up and you know, force drugs upon you or, or make you intimidate it to buy drugs um, resonated in the fear of a lot of children. Um, but that's not really how any of it worked. There were no pushers on a playground and leather jackets following kids around trying to get them to buy drugs. And the depiction just wasn't reality. And kids began to understand that that reality um, didn't match up with what the Just Say No campaign was trying to push. And in my experience, you know, peer pressure kind of has in vastly different ways. Um, One is everyone's doing drugs and you feel kind of pressured that you want to fit in. Even if no one's making you do it or offering it to you, they may offer it, but they're not being forceful on you. Um, Which different, which was different from the TV shows that warned of peer pressure where friends were given ultimatums, either you do this or you're not my friend anymore. Um, if you were my friend, you would, you would try this heroin. (laughs) I like to go extreme on this, but all these things kind of weren't really happening to people, to kids. I mean, they were being told this is how it is when somebody's pushing drugs on you. And then they were having the realization that it really wasn't like that. It was their friends that were pushing drugs on them. Um, and you get peer pressure also from a trusted friend who generally wants you to experience new things with them. Like it's not so much you have to do it or else it's, I'm experiencing this. I've enjoyed it. I'm having a good time on it. You should try it too. Um, let's down some Viking in together or let's, you know, snort some lines of Coke in the basement together and, and run into walls. Like, yes, that happens. It does happen. It happens all the time where friends, one friend decides that he's going to try drugs or she's going to try drugs. And Hey, I want you to do it with me. Cause you know, I want to do it you know, I want to be around people I'm comfortable with. Let's me and you try this together. And then you also have peer pressure, which is basically friendly teasing from your group of friends about 
you being straight laced or being lame or being a nerd because you won't do drugs. So what was reality? Um, and what was being taught to kids was two vastly different things. Again, this campaign is extremely confusing because they're painting drug dealers as, and you know, I'm not saying drug dealers are great. I mean, mine's pretty cool. I mean, you know, I get discounts, but drug dealers are probably not after this episode. I'm not, um, be paying a premium, but, um, Drug dealers are painted as these evil snakes that were just hanging out in dark corners waiting for you to go by, you know, um, you know, where the, where the graffiti's all over the wall and they're behind the trash can in a dark alley, just waiting for you, um, to make you an addict and, you know, hanging around the playgrounds, you know, the 40 year old guy who shouldn't be at the playground is on the playground. This is weird. Oh, it just turns out that he's selling pot. Now you're friends with him. Um, and going over to his house to play Atari. That's normal. But they weren't these <laughs> they weren't these creepy uh, people that were hanging out in alleys waiting to grab you as you walked by and forcing drugs on you. Um, instead of them telling us, I guess, that friends who do drugs uh, are horrible people who will try to make us feel bad for thinking for ourselves and making decisions that are best for us, uh, they should have just taught you that just because our friends are doing drugs, it doesn't mean it's the right choice for you. You know, and it was such a hard line instead of a, instead of a transparent way, they really made it very, very edgy and said, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, if you do this, this is what's going to end up happening to you. And it's very similar to kind of the debate over sex education in schools. Um, the, the states that do this abstinence only sex ed, and you can research this. Um, and I'm not here to tell you how to do your sex ed. Okay. So chill out relax. We're having fun here. But schools that had pushed an abstinence only sex education um, in their schools had the highest teen pregnancy rates in the nation. That is true. It just It's funny when you lock up condoms, kids don't really like asking for the condoms. They like to go and get the condoms and buy them secretly. That's why you put the condoms in the bathrooms. That's why you put the vending machine up. All condoms I bought all the way up until age 37 were bought in a gas station bathroom with a vending machine on the wall that cost 75 cents. It's the truth. I wish I could tell you I was more sophisticated. But you know what? When you lock up the condoms, I got to go find the condoms where the condoms don't get me looked at. Okay. And that's, well, yeah, that's kind of weird to say it's in the bathroom. It's in the men's bathroom of a gas station, but it is in the men's bathroom of a gas station. You knew which ones sold the, sold the condoms in the vending machines. It's kind of a, it's kind of a go around to the system. Okay. That was working against you from, you know, getting late. Okay. Let's just be honest here. And a lot of those condoms never got used and I still have them to this day and I need to throw them away. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm not what you call a man who got lucky a lot. Can't you tell from the podcast here? Anyway, it's <laughs> the message <laughs> for just say no was just so extreme that a fifth grader in the eighties saw their parents, that their parents fully function on drugs like alcohol and nicotine. And they also realized that the person who deals drugs at their school wasn't creepy, wasn't a creepy dude in a Camaro that had, you know, 
primered fenders and an emergency uh, tire on the back. But it was actually, guess what? Their friend sitting next to him in math class. Who do you think was selling the drugs? It was other kids that were selling the drugs, man. It wasn't creepy people. So, we were, you know, listen, we, we, you know, we're getting hammered by this information from Just Say No. And at the end of the day, it turns out the the dealers that they were trying to paint to be a certain type of character, it was really just your friend who uh, had a couple of ounces, not even an ounce, probably had a couple of nickel and dime bags back then in their book bag. That's what they were selling you. They got it from their older brother. That's how this went down. And so what these kids were seeing in reality, again, just didn't match up. Um, and it was just so over-exaggerated. The propaganda was heavy. Um, and when they started D.A.R.E. Um, in 1983, again, I think a little later in the, in the, in the year of 1983, um, shortly after the Just Say No campaign, they did D.A.R.E. And it started a partnership uh, as a partnership between the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles School District. Um, and the problem with D.A.R.E. was that um, police officers were conducting the drug education classes. The problem with police doing the drug education classes, if you can imagine, um, was that they probably had the strictest views on drugs. Uh, take your preacher and times at times 10 and give them authority to arrest you. Um, that's basically what's going on here. Um, they would often give very exaggerated stories about what happened to people on drugs. Um, I was reading on Reddit, and one of the Redditors actually said uh, that he remembers a D.A.R.E. officer coming in to his classroom and telling his classmates that marijuana actually ate holes in your brain and that he had <laughs> arrested several people in his career who had smoked marijuana so much that it ate their brains and that they were just basically not so crazy. Think about that. Authority figure is telling you that marijuana ate holes in, in the brains of people that he arrested. Um, so it resulted in a no-tolerance drug policy um, and resulted in prison penalties for drugs. Uh, of course, skyrocketed because tolerances became very, um, very low for drug offenses. And over 50% of the United States prison system at that time uh, I think by the time Reagan left office was uh, 50% were drug offenses. That's overwhelming. And now, and now look at us. Now we're trying to find ways, you know, we had this three strike law in, in the nineties and, and, and we're now trying to find a way to balance uh, legal marijuana possession. And, and some States are doing full on drug. Hey, this drug party. Let's just, let's just do everything. Let's just have a drug like Lollapalooza here and you guys just do whatever drugs you want. And, uh, you know, we'll just not do anything about it. So we've come a long, we've come a long way, baby. We've come a long way in drugs. <laughs> we've, we've, we've kind of, we've kind of learned to, to tune in and drop out, I guess. But, uh, much of the, uh, the criticism for the campaigns and laws that resulted from the campaign are focused around the idea, uh, of treatment. Um, many believe that the laws led to the mass incarceration for nonviolent crimes. And of course that is still very prevalent today and that there was too much emphasis on deterrent tactics without focusing on drug treatment and substance abuse uh, programs, which is something again, that I think that we're trying to break away from 
our, our old way of thinking and saying, hey, look, maybe we do need to kind of treat people um, on, uh, that are addicted to drugs in a different way than just putting them in prison. Um, so in hindsight, the Just Say No movement may have been too simple. Rather than avoiding the issue altogether by just saying no, the campaign may have been a, maybe a, look a little bit more effective had it focused on actual education as to the dangers and effects that can come from chronic drug use. So chronic cocaine use or chronic crack use or chronic heroin usage um, could lead to these problems or most likely will lead to these problems. And I don't think it would have been a stretch in a lot of the cases of major drugs. But again, when you're trying to paint all drugs with a broad uh, paint stroke and kids are seeing things differently in reality, it's just kind of a, a plane hitting a mountain. Um, so to speak. And years after the start of Just Say No, numerous studies in the late 90s and early 2000s looked at the effects of anti-drug marketing efforts and found there weren't as effective as they thought they would be. One study from 2002 looked at the effectiveness of 30 different anti-drug public service announcements. It found that PSAs were generally unreliable when they focused on drug abstinence. The most effective PSA provided uh, information about the negative consequences of drug use, whereas the least effective tended to focus on avoiding behaviors and on just saying no. So if it, the most effective was education of the consequences of drug use, you know, look, you're probably going to be broke. You know, if you're going to just, if you're going to, uh, hey, look, you might be a functioning heroin addict. That's okay. People, there's some people who can do that. But for the rest of us, we use heroin, we're probably going to end up in the gutter somewhere. Instead of just saying, hey, just avoid the behavior altogether, here's why you should avoid the behavior, um, would have been a lot more effective. And according to a separate 2008 study that looked into anti-drug campaigns from 99 to 2004, they concluded that anti-drug campaigns are not only unlikely to have any favorable effects, they may even have some delayed unfavorable effects. The study specifically looked at how exposures to these messages on influence of behavior for marijuana. Uh, overall, the campaign was successful in achieving a high level of exposure to its message. So Just Say No was very successful in getting the message out. However, there is no evidence that they found that support that the claim, um, support the claim that this exposure effective use uh, of marijuana and declined it, uh, made a decline to that at all. In fact, it, it made very little dent at all into marijuana use in, in teens. Um, just say no and dare may not have had the desired effects. Um, they also failed to acknowledge the dangers of one type of drug has taken hold of our country in recent years. But I want to say one of the major consequences of, uh, of the Just Say No drug campaign is that it did go after major illicit drugs like heroin and cocaine, but it kind of ignored the dangers of prescription drugs, which is the primary problem of the drug epidemic in the nation today. Uh, pain pills, prescription medications uh, make up half of all drug deaths uh, each year, leading to tens of thousands of deaths annually. Because Just Say No focuses on, focused on drugs like heroin and marijuana, it kind of ignored the opportunity to talk about the dangers of pharmaceutical painkillers. Prescription drugs, um, of course, have become wildly more popular in the United States. We see a lot of people that make the excuse that if it's prescribed by a doctor or made by a lab, it's got to be good. 
Um, this can't be any further than the truth from the truth of the matter. And hopefully we're learning that as we go and we see this opiate crisis and whatnot, um, especially from Oxycontin and, and a lot of these um, uh, pain medications. But uh, while independent organizations have taken steps to educate the youth on negatives associated with drug use, the government has also taken specific measures to kind of combat, uh, combat the opiate crisis. For instance, President Trump's administration launched the Crisis Next Door campaign where aimed to reduce the stigma associated with prescription drug addiction, despite the good intentions. At the end of the day, the Just Say No anti-drug campaign started by Nancy Reagan may not have been as effective as it could have. An absence-only approach coupled with the harsh drug penalties of the time focused more on punishment rather than treatment led to its downfall. And just as a bonus content, because obviously this episode went a lot longer than they're supposed to, and they won't be like this all the time, but it was our first episode. I'll tell you my first drug story. Do y'all want to hear it? Of course you do. Gather around, listen closely, because this is the story of El Dangeroso's first drug experience. I had a friend who enjoyed partaking in the marijuana and he had told me, do you want to partake in this marijuana with me? It's a lot of fun. And me being young and impressionable and easy uh, to manipulate and take advantage of, gave in to the peer pressure and said, yes, I would like to try the marijuana. How do we try this marijuana? And he said, well, I have the marijuana, but what we're going to do is we're going to meet tonight. You're going to come to my house and we're going to do the best thing you can do on marijuana. You might think that's watching Beach MTV, and you might think that that's watching MacGyver or Growing Pains. However, I and you are wrong about that because apparently the greatest thing you can do on marijuana is ride bicycles. Yeah. So I get over there, and he says, we're going to go on a bike ride, and we're going to ride over to this wooded area outside of town and we're going to smoke the marijuana and I'm going to walk you through it. I'm an expert. Don't worry. Don't think that you're going to have a heart attack or anything's happening. It's going to be fine. Just come with me, get on the bike. Let's ride over there. Well, he had a really cool, like $800 mountain bike. And the only other bike he had available was his sister's 10 speed. Now, why this wasn't thought out before he decided that we were going to smoke the marijuana together on the outskirts of town on a girl's Murray, I'm not sure. But I had to jump on this pink girl's Murray bicycle, follow him half a mile outside of town. Luckily, he was close. We get up in this wooded area. He says, all right, it's time. I just want you to take it in. And I want you to hold it. I don't want you to hold it. I don't want you to hold it. I don't want you to let it go. Okay. Do so. Nothing's registering yet. I think this is garbage, man. This is just, this is like oregano. What are we doing? Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Okay. Hold it. Uh, uh, uh. Well, it happened. And it happened really quickly. And all of a sudden, I lost control of everything that was going on around me. I was in a dream state in a spirit world with a bicycle and I'm just think everything is the funniest thing on the planet. 
and I'm confused. <laughs> I am lost and it's okay. I feel okay. He's like, I'm going to walk you through this. So we hang out a little bit. We talk about the experience. He says, I think you're ready. Let's get on these bikes and ride to the Waffle House. It's a safe zone. Nobody can get arrested at the Waffle House. You'll be fine. So I say, of course, yes, a bike ride sounds wonderful. Let's go ride a bike. And I get on this, I think it was a Huffy girl. Huffy, was it Huffy or Murray? I don't remember. Some Walmart 10 speed. Get on it, ride it back to the Waffle House, which is farther than we went to get to the wooded area. Get to this Waffle House. And I started to think, man, I'm kind of paranoid, man. Like, I can't, I can barely see out of my eyes. I feel like, you know, my eyes have wind blowing in them. I'm, my eyes are tearing up. I feel weird. I don't know if I have to go to the bathroom right now. I don't know what I'm doing with my hands. You know, is my hair look okay? Why I'm on this bike? How did we get here? All this is going on in my head. He's like, let's just go in, dude. Let's just go in. Let's sit down and let's order a Waffle House. So I say, okay, sounds good. I'm really hungry right now. I'm really hungry. Is this normal? It's normal. Let's just go in and get something to eat. So I go in. We get something. We get some waffles. We get some waffles and some uh, hash browns. Now, I'm not really a Waffle House person, but let me tell you something. If you've ever smoked weed, go get yourself a really nice waffle and some hash browns with ketchup. Amazing, right? This is the most glorious moment in my life. The, the greatest meal I've ever eaten. It's fantastic. My taste buds are dancing. They're doing uh, pirouettes. They're twisting and turning. They're, they're thrusting and thriving. Everything in my mouth is alive and I feel wonderful and I get kind of sleepy. And the next thing I know, I put my head down on a napkin holder at the table and I wake up and everybody is gone. Nobody is in the Waffle House. Not only did no one panic at the Waffle House, but my friend left me. Everybody's gone. I don't know what to do. And I'm still a little bit high, okay? And I literally put my forehead down on a napkin holder at Waffle House. And um, I walk out. I, I don't even know if I'm supposed to pay. I ask people, did they, yeah, they already took care of it. You're good, man. You know, I guess Waffle House is used to this at this point. Okay. Thank God no cops came in. Maybe they did. Maybe they just didn't care. I walk out. And I'm thinking, I don't even know how to navigate my way back home. I'm on this girl's 10 speed. This is terrible. Um, awful, awful situation to be in. Luckily, across the street is my friend. He had run into some other friends and just decided that I would be okay to leave me with my head down on the napkin holder. These Remember the square, uh, like metal, like old napkin holders at Waffle House? Um, yeah. Uh, probably have Waffle House imprinted on my forehead at the time uh, backwards. And I come out and I'm like, hey, man, what are we doing? You know, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, dude. Let's go. Yeah, let's go back now. We rode back to his house. The sun began to rise and we woke up on his lawn with his dad waking us up, who was a police officer. True story. He laughed it off. We laughed it off. Uh, we went into his house, of course, went to bed because we'd been up all night playing around. 
um, and tracked dog Dew into his home unknowingly and were awoken by his mother furious at the fact that we tried, we, uh, had tracked dog Dew across her carpet. Um, but you know, she found her boy and his best friend on the carpet sleeping a really crazy night off. Anyway, that is my drug story. I know you have yours. Uh, once we get the social media thing up, send me a message. I'd love to hear your fun, innocent drug story. But listen, I again, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. This went about 20 minutes longer than it should have. But it's our first episode, and I'm excited. I enjoy doing this stuff. Like I said, I enjoy pop culture. I hope you enjoy going back and kind of listening to Swatch History and the Just Say No campaign. We'll be doing a lot of cool stuff like that as we go forward. You know, I've got plans for the Jim Baker scandal. Um, we're going to be talking about New Coke, Crystal Pepsi, uh, Lollapalooza, uh, the death of uh, several artists that we uh, remember in the 90s, Lane Staley. We'll talk about their last hours and, and how things got to where they were. But it's going to be a, a really, really fun ride. If you enjoy the 80s and 90s, I invite you to come with me. It's going to be a blast. Please share this show. I like to get some uh, attention with it uh, because I do love the 80s and 90s. I love pop pop culture so much, and I I just love exploring it. Um, So I hope you guys had a blast. Please go back and uh, subscribe to me on uh, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, wherever podcasts are you can find us. Uh, I would really appreciate you giving us uh, a lot of um, attention and I hope we have a long, long relationship of you being a part of this show. Thanks so much, everybody. 